0: Strategies for complex chronic illness. That's today's show. Yay. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 360. And I have invited the wonderful Dr. Ben Reeds to join me. He is the founder of the Portland Clinic of Natural Health in Oregon, USA, and is so dedicated to elevating the health and well-being of his patients, one journey at a time. He truly believes each journey has something unique to teach the person, to teach him as a clinician. And it's all about unraveling puzzles in timely ways in the best order of doing things for the person, uh, there so that they can actually heal themselves because he believes no one can heal you, but you, and his book is the serpent and the butterfly, the seven laws of healing, which came out a few years ago now, but I got around to reading it recently. And I really, really appreciated Ben's approach. Uh, as a doctor and as a human. You really feel the humanness, the compassion come through in the way he speaks, shares, teaches uh, and advises. And I know you'll see that come through in today's episode. So we talk about all sorts of things. We talk about um, different uh, types of hydrotherapy, Uh, different uh, ways you can use hyperbaric oxygen. We talk about different forms of gut testing and how sometimes the less specific uh, testing could actually bring more rewards. And we briefly touch on things like, uh, do we really need to eat a teeny tiny handful of foods for the rest of our lives if we're sensitive to lots of foods at this particular point in time? We unpack a lot of stuff, so I know you're going to enjoy that. I would definitely encourage you following Ben on Instagram. It's at Dr. Reeb's, nice and easy, Uh, and I've got all of the details in the show notes for you at lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Now, of course, our show couldn't exist without our wonderful sponsors helping you make your lotox swaps. Uh, And if you're listening to this show in summer, uh, and you happen to live on the east coast of Australia, uh, now is the time for me to remind you once again that humidity is one of the chief causes of the proliferation of mould. So when we've ruled out water damage and big systemic leaks or some little systemic leaks or rising damp or roof problems, when none of that seems to be the issue and yet there is mould, It is because of one of two things. It is the human impact of mould. So cooking, steaming things, long cooked broths, uh, humans breathing. Uh, Or it is the climactic impact of humidity in a prolonged uh, sense. So we know that two days or more, mould can start growing if it's got food. Uh, So all it needs is a bit of moisture and a bit of dust. And it is party time. So, to stop that from happening, the good news in this situation is you can arrest the growth of mold and you can arrest the activity of mold. So, active mold is what causes a lot of the symptoms that people experience, especially the respiratory um, symptoms. And I know for me, if I stay on top of my dehumidifying, I feel generally pretty fantastic, even if there may be some positive mold testing in the place I'm in. Uh, And so this is really positive because it means if we put our focus on humidity, we can actually do a lot to feel great, even if we are a more sensitive uh, type or even if we are experiencing or going through SIRS, Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, and mold has been found to be the the key contributor. So I would say if you have a large living dining situation or a living dining kitchen, the minimum size of uh, dehumidifier you want is a 35 litre. Sorry about that. Uh, And to then really up the ante, if you want the strongest, most powerful motor, a 50 litre dehumidifier might be a goer if you've got a really large living dining or if you've got very high ceilings. So the good news is is I climate make both of these sizes and we have a super special Christmas offer if you happen to be listening to this live. The 35 liter is currently $150 off with the code LOTOXLIFEXMAS, so Xmas. So LOTOXLIFEXMAS. Life XMAS. Uh, and so that brings it down from $529 to $379 for a 35 litre dehumidifier. That is a really good price and it's a very powerful machine. It's a great size for larger master bedrooms as well, uh, or if you just need to dehumidify an area really quickly, because the larger machine has the more powerful motor. Uh, but then, of course, across the whole of the dehumidifier range, all the way through 2023, you have 10% off with the code Life. So go to ozclimate.com.au. You can always, of course, check out their amazing air filters as well from the Winix range. Uh, But that is our major sponsor with a big thank you to them. Then we have Killer Pillar. Now I don't know if you guys remember, maybe some of the longer listening uh, podcast community will, But Killer Pillar is a fantastic chiropractor-designed pillow to build perfect alignment from our all the way down our spine. So it gives your head a little pouch sort of to sit back in as you lie down on your back. And Dr. Todd and his wife, Caroline, are so passionate about this pillow. And unfortunately, during COVID and with them being overseas, caring for a relative, uh, they actually had to stop production because one of their... Uh, one of their suppliers fell through, but I was so thrilled to get an email from Carolina to say, "We're back. Please let us come back on the show uh, because I have had so many reports from you guys in the past about this pillow being a game changer for neck pain, for tightness in the shoulders, and for really getting a good quality night's sleep. So it is made of wool and cotton, all natural materials. It's a beautiful product, and they're giving you 15% off with the code LOTOXLIFE. You also will get free shipping within Australia, and that's going to be valid all the way through till the 31st of December. So hop to it. Go check out K-I-L-L-A, P-I-L-L-A.com.au. Uh, it's a pretty amazing technology uh, in terms of how the pillow is built and you'll see the pictures on the site. And I want to mention also they have a tween-aged pillow from 8 to 12-year-old as well. So you have adjustable aspects to the pillow and when you lie down on it, you will initially feel like, gosh, my head's going so much further back than in a regular pillow situation. But that is actually part of the plan to get your spine aligned. So if you're experiencing some issues there and you really do want to try something a bit out of the box and see if it might move the needle for you, I can guarantee you it has for many. And I'm thrilled to see uh, Carolina and Todd back in business with the Killer Pillar because I think it has a lot to offer a lot of people. So a huge thank you to both of our sponsors where the code LOTOXLIFE will work and uh, you can use that at the checkout. And a little reminder there, of course, that that 35-litre dehumidifier from Oz Climate is very briefly on special until the 4th of December with $150 off with the code Xmas. Now let's listen to this wonderful conversation with Dr. Ben Reeves and unravel the complex chronic illness picture. Hello,
1: Ben. How are you? Good. Thanks, Alex. How are you doing?
0: I'm really great, and I'm very much looking forward to diving into this chat today because I came across your work just randomly. I think it was maybe Carrie Jones who had shared one of your clips and then i I, I had a little dive and uh, and I thought, no, I have to get Ben on the show because you have a beautiful way of explaining between what should be happening in the natural order of things and how we are literally geared for success when it comes to health, but then all the things that come along that, um, that make it not so. And uh, when I was reading your book to get ready for our chat and, and dive into your ethos a bit more, I love that you start with a quote about commitment. From William H. Murray. And what was really interesting as I read it, you know, today, it it made me think, wow, we live in a time where we have to consciously commit to health. That's interesting because if you think back, we did a lot more where health was just a byproduct of our life and actions and now it's something we have to kind of make space for and make mental space for you know with food for example that means uh no wonder people find it hard sometimes right
1: absolutely mm. yeah and i think you you uh, brought up a good point too i mean we really have to choose you know to do it it's not something that just happens willy-nilly. You know, we just uh, wake up one day and, you know, and, and health just flows uh, because everything's kind of set up against us now in a way. I mean, I, um, you know, with um, with the, the nutrient deficiency in our food and um, our exposure to toxic chemicals, I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. And so I think the moment we choose that, that quote you mentioned, I mean, it's often attributed to Goethe, uh, you know, who wrote Faust, yeah. the famous German, but it actually is William Murray who, uh, who, who uh, wrote it and then Faust later took it or, or Goethe later took it uh, and, and put, you know, put it in his book. Uh, uh, but, but really, once we choose, I do think that, you know, yes, it is an internal job. It's an inside job. The, the body's always working to heal itself. But once we align with those laws of healing, uh, or make that conscious decision intentionally to try to try to to align. Um, it, it's almost as if um, the outer world starts to align a little bit more, and opportunities come our way. Uh, you know, to go on our own health journey.
0: Yeah, and I guess that sort of speaks to what I was going to ask you to to dive into a little bit more when you say uh, no one can heal you. And a lot of people are always looking out there for who is going to be the person to heal them. Uh, and it's an inside job working with the laws of nature.
1: Yeah, it really is. And um, I think that everyone, I think, I mean, I need to be reminded of that. We all need to be reminded that the body is always working to heal itself. It's it's like, yes, we are designed to be inflamed, but we're also designed to heal Uh, You know, things can go either way. uh, And and yet the body is always trying to correct things. You know, even as I sit here, you know, digesting my lunch or what have you, um, you know, maybe I've had um, a headache or had some heartburn or something. Uh, These are literally our body's ways of trying to correct things. It's almost like a dancer or a fighter, uh, you know, trying to maintain equilibrium. And so it's, it's it's a different worldview. It's a different paradigm. And you know we're, we're reminded of this paradigm by all these great uh, beings, uh, you know, from different cultures, uh, you know, medicine healers uh, of, of every walk, every you know, every um, culture, uh, reminding us about these laws, you know, whether it's Ayurvedic, whether it's Chinese medicine, whether it's um, you know Native Indian medicine in the U.S., uh, you know, you name it, uh, and and these laws are being reminded. Uh, every day by these people who, who, who literally lived them. And I think that uh, we need to be reminded um, about it because it's, it's true and yet it, it's a different orientation.
0: Mm, absolutely. I mean, Western culture, Western medicine has spent the better part of the last two centuries colonizing indigenous countries and, saying step aside we are going to show you what sophisticated human life is and sometimes I just think really we really did that because there was all this wisdom everywhere and we just kind of tried our best to stamp it out and uh, you know I come from British ancestry so we're like uh, stars of the show in that front and I and I cry inside sometimes just thinking of the wisdom that we've we've pushed aside because there are so many Indigenous cultures who live and and always try to keep their people coming back to balance and a sense of homeostasis whether you know they haven't called it that uh, but um, you can see it in in the practice of everyday life right
1: absolutely i mean the body really is ordered and intelligent it's designed uh, you know to to rebalance and um th- there's uh, there's the counterpoint out there that you know that's that makes a, it's very good for business to say oh uh, you know, it's an accident. Oh, it's um, my favorite word is idiopathic. You know, we really don't know. Yes. We really don't know what it is. So we're going to call it idiopathic. Um, you can go look it up on Google, you know, uh, because most people probably don't even know what idiopathic means. Uh, but, uh, but basically can, what's that? Can you
0: 101 us on idiopathic <laughs> oh, yeah, right. for anyone I mean, who's like, hold on. Yeah, I don't so, know what it right. means.
1: Yeah. yeah. So idiopathic <laughs> means, uh, you know, it's spontaneous. There, there really is no identifiable cause So we're just going to presume that this condition just arose spontaneously, basically accidentally, you know, and it it gets into kind of existentialism and whether or not there really is a meaning to life. Anyway, with, you know, philosophy aside, any good auto mechanic knows that when something goes wrong in a car, it's for a reason there isn't just like a, Oh, you know, uh, my, my check engine light came on, you know, no big deal. I'm going to keep driving. (laughs) I mean, and it's the same in the body. Uh, So um, I think that naturopathic physicians, uh, functional medicine, uh, doctors, uh, you know, we really are mechanics looking at the whole picture of the body, not just zeroing in on one little area, you know, like a like a surgeon specializing in the gut. Um, we're more specializing in the whole picture. And we know that when those check engine lights come on, you know it's it's always for a reason. Uh, we just need to go digging. The thing is, is, it takes a little more time to do that sleuthing and to, and to find it. And it also takes more training. It takes more education. And so it really is a specialty in and of itself. And I think that the world is beginning to, to realize this and kind of carving out a, a place for us. A lot of people are looking... Um, to, they want to be seen as a whole person. They want to look at, you know, look at body, mind, and spirit. And they know that, oh, yeah, that heartburn and that hiatal hernia and that headache and that fatigue, oh, you know, they're all probably connected. They're not four different diseases, four different conditions. They're, 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 but they need someone to help put it together, help put, you know, put back together the pieces of the puzzle.
0: Mm. And it, it makes me think of how many symptoms you can now just go straight to a pharmacy. You don't even need to go to a doctor half the time because you've got all the ads. I mean, we have a few ads here in Australia, but you guys in America really take the cake for uh, symptomatic pharmaceutical advertising. And so you don't even half the time check in with a health professional of any kind for your headache or your heartburn or your um, fungal rash on your finger that keeps coming up. You just go straight to the pharmacy and pick up a product. And do you think that is actually one of the, the biggest issues that we're, we're not getting guidance on those check lights that are coming up? Um, and there isn't someone intervening at a much earlier stage that could be stopping the, the crisis case situation we often end up in when we ignore all of these things and keep suppressing them with over-the-counter drugs.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I'd be curious to know what other countries are allowed to do that because I do remember learning about 10 years ago that Australia and the US were the only two countries in the world that um, where, um, you know, pharmaceuticals were allowed to be... Um, you know, on advertising, and to be, you know, as if there were no middle person, no no doctor prescribing them. You know, go ask your doctor. Mm. Um, and I'd be curious to know what other countries have jumped on board that, or have, have are allowing that now. But I do think it's unethical, and it really does a disservice to humanity because we're basically trained uh, to stop listening. We're trained to stop listening to our bodies, um, and to to trust. Big pharma and to trust a company that that has a hidden agenda which is to sell um, that product and basically you know it, i go back to the auto the, the car analogy really it's like if i were driving i live in portland oregon you know in the middle of the pacific northwest um you know about two and a half hours south of seattle washington and so if i were to get in my car and drive up to seattle and my check engine light came on halfway you know, if I just got out of my car and found a way to remove my dashboard uh, and then literally <laughs> took a little wire cutter and snipped that light, then I could keep driving and I'd be, I would, wouldn't be troubled anymore. And that really is a lot of times what these pharmaceuticals do is they just snip the uh, the light um, when really um, there's a message there. A headache is communicating something. And if we turn it off, um, we run the risk of driving it deeper into the body. Uh, and there's there's a there's an old law um, called the law of suppression. And it really is a big a big part of allopathic conventional medicine where we basically suppress symptoms. And, you know, of course we do this in psychology as well, where we can suppress our feelings, um, you know, in order to, 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 to feel happy or to feel whatever, but we can do that with our um, bodies too. And the thing is, is that the old naturopathic doctors knew that when we did that, there was always a consequence. We would drive it deeper, almost like a stone falling deeper into a, into a well, but it's going to cause a deeper um, rippling effect perhaps. Um, and then something else is going to pop up later on that's even more profound. Um, and that's that's the danger we run with a lot of these medications. I think the biggest one that comes to mind would be the proton pump inhibitors that we can find you know, at the big box stores or I guess at Costco here in in the in the US, you know, you can literally just go and pick up a pink box of Prilosec or a meprazole or anything ending uh you know in azole or whatever. Um and uh and then we can take these and we literally turn our stomach acid off. We literally turn off our our body's ability to make stomach acid. Uh and the thing is is that The first thing you learn in medical school in year one is the importance of stomach acid and how the stomach acid has to be between a pH of one and three and a half in the stomach in order to activate a whole cascade of hormones and enzymes and also to absorb and digest food and to break it down uh, into nutrients to be absorbed. And so literally by taking this seemingly harmless medication, we run the risk of full-on malabsorption. And um, and now all the studies show that people who take these things for 10 years or more are at much higher risk of dementia, much much higher risk of osteoporosis. The list goes on and on and on, and it's all in the science. Um, And that really is a great example of how the consequences of just turning off our heartburn with um, a Meprazole uh, down the road We'll, we'll basically mean we don't we don't have the nutrients our body needs, and suddenly we become sick with some chronic disease.
0: Yeah, it's it's frightening. And I think back to my own childhood, Ben and my early late teens, early 20s, and for me, the two things that I took that seemed harmless at the time and even helpful uh, were uh, headache and migraine medications and antibiotics. And this is a story of millions of people. I'm not some special human. I'm not the only person out there. This is millions of people who probably end up with people like you eventually. And no one at any point told me, hey, how many of these are you taking? I was working in cosmetics. We were doused in fragrances all day, which has a whole other effect, of course um but one of the known effects in the research is headache or migraine and I reckon I would have been taking a pack of a strong kind of Tylenol type product every month I would have made it through that packet I I remember that the lady in one of the beauty counters who had a facial room she used to say well why don't you go and sleep it off um with a couple of tablets so your headache can maybe go while the manager's off on lunch. This was common. This was not a weird thing. We all knew how to help each other deal with it. Meanwhile, also with the chronic infections and the antibiotics, no one at any point said, hey, how many of these have you taken all up? Because of course, you know, I mean, yes, there are issues with privacy when it comes to medical history on every medical computer screen. I get that. But one of the downsides of not having that is the doctor won't see, come up, well, hold on, you've taken this antibiotic 15 times. Uh, we got to figure something out here. Um, and no one at any point talks about liver health, glutathione production, hormone production, uh, and the cascading effects of when you have prolonged um, depletion of those resources in the human body. And it's no surprise for me that I then end up with SIRS two decades later. No surprise at all. If you know, to realize the cascading effects of these seemingly harmless medications. And it's one of the reasons advocacy is so important to me because my gosh, right. And you see this every day in practice, I'm sure.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really big hole in healthcare. I mean, I know throughout the world, really, uh, you know, I I mean, I, we, I travel the world and it's amazing. I I talk to everyone, whether it's in Europe or South America or Central America, uh, you know, wherever. And and they all say, oh yeah, this type of medicine is um, needed. And um, unfortunately it's more expensive everywhere as well. Everyone considers, you know, functional and holistic medicine to be more expensive because it is However, the thing is, is we're spending hours and hours putting together a person's entire timeline in order to maybe save them from, um, you know, a death or or a very severe disease that could come on soon or or might already be present, um, depending on what types of conditions one works with. Like SIRS, I mean, there's there's such a gamut or a spectrum with SIRS, but obviously the more advanced stages are incredibly serious, Um, you know, so... um, yeah, I think um, to have someone to help look at that timeline and be like, "Wow, I guess, oh, you were taking antibiotics for nine years every year. You took it two or three times. I mean, this is such a common story I hear. You know that patients been on it from the age of ten years old to nineteen years old for various conditions. They took it maybe twice a year every year, and, and now they're coming to me with, like you said, like some liver issues or um, maybe some eczema or or something else, I mean, maybe psoriasis." Uh, I mean, it just and they don't make any connection between that um that that period of time and what they have now. And I have to help make that connection for them in a safe way. And like you said, advocate and, and educate and then try to put together a plan. Once we have an understanding perhaps of of what happened, we can maybe go back in time um, to help heal and repair yeah.
0: know, what happened. And I love that you talk about um uh healing in the way that you do in the book. And I think uh, it feels like a good time to talk about, well, you know, at least a few thousand people would have heard me sharing my teens and early twenties and gone, oh my gosh, that was me as well. Like what are some practical ways for people to heal and repair? Because I've found that it's that Gen X where, you know, the antibiotics were like candy and where we left home early and we we just went and took our painkillers so that we could soldier on and get on with life um, because, you know, life was exciting and there was stuff to do. We're all ending up then with these more chronic kind of insidious low-lying uh, situations that won't go away What are some of the ways to heal and repair that you find most effective to help bring back that alignment, that sense of uh, vitality in the body?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And I think um, it's, you know, of course, so easy just to go down and um, recount a litany of just, you know, the basics or whatever, Um, you know eat a healthy diet and yeah. get outside and all that. But these people have
0: also tried all the things. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah.
1: and it's so easy to to pay lip service to that or to, to say that. And yet the journey is not easy. I think that, you know, I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan and, uh, you know, he inspired, inspired star Wars and, and he, he always would say that we have to go on that that path that no one else has gone on before in the dark wood, taking a step on a path that's untred, you know, untrodden, um, but by you know, by me or by the person on their own healing journey. And I think that um, as, uh, as healthcare providers, you know, as a healthcare provider, I'm just sort of a guide or a helper, but really they're the ones doing the work and they're the ones on the journey. And I think each journey is unique and what works for one person will not work for another person. Um, and, you know, even things like antioxidants, you know, it's a, obviously it's a huge rage, all you know, very popular, but like it's, it's possible to take too many antioxidants, you know, and one can take uh, too many to where it actually shuts down the body's ability to, to actually have natural inflammation and to do the things that it needs to do. So um, the difference between a medicine and a poison really is the dose. And, you know, I think one really needs to know that when they're looking at supplements. Um, and then, of course, uh, we, we know that all disease does begin in the gut. We knew that 2,500 years ago when Hippocrates said it or was it, it was attributed to Hippocrates. But it's still true today. And so I think the number one thing we can do is repair the gut. But if the gut's not repaired, um, it, or I should say, if we're not sleeping um, Then the gut's never going to get repaired, and I think so. I think sleep is probably the number one thing, Uh, and that's even bigger than diet. Um, I'm a huge, uh, you know, detox nerd, and I love. I'm obsessed with water and hydrotherapy. Um, I think that if a person can find their favorite form of hydrotherapy, whether it be, you know, a steam sauna or, um, you know, a cold plunge, hot plunge, plunge, you know, uh, Epsom salt baths, I mean, any kind of thing that they can do that they love that's going to get them sweating and get them, um, get the lymph and the blood flowing, um, you know, that I think that's key to anyone's health. But some people, I mean, are so sick that they can't even handle those little things at all. They can barely handle a, an Epsom salt foot bath, for example. You know? So I think meeting each person where they're at is just critical.
0: Yeah, so important, and and doing what you can. Uh, I really like in your book. You have this fantastic little demo with complete with visuals on like the compress. I, what is it called? It's like a. It's got a technical name. I'm sure you can share it with us. But the hot towel followed by the cold towel, and you can do it um, lying face up or lying face down. And and I think that's something we could all maybe you know start with if you're really really sensitive or very sick right now um it it even felt comfortable to read through that process i think
1: absolutely yeah just any kind of combination of hot and cold and i think i mean all the all the research actually shows now that um you know an ice cold shower like wim hof style really isn't the best thing uh, for somebody who's dealing with a complex chronic illness it's actually better for them just to take a very you know just a cool shower for 30 seconds and they can get that effect you know following let's say a hot shower or a hot bath um but basically uh you know i, I know you know this but um you know heat kind of brings all that blood to the surface and then the cold the coolness drives it back into the inner organs and so it's like an inner flushing like an inner wringing out of the tissues and it's so cleansing. I think of it a, a lot like the ocean, you know, kind of the tide pools getting cl- cleansed uh, by the tide coming in and then going out. It's the same in our bodies. Uh, but if we can do that with hot and cold, um, then uh, we can we can have the same effect. And it's so detoxifying. And then we know that detoxification lowers inflammation. It lowers oxidative stress. It upregulates nutrient absorption, so we get what our bodies need. And, so, and it's free, I mean, really to do, you know, like you said, the hot and cold towels or taking a cool shower for 30 seconds. For most people, that's an easily accessible thing that's free.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of people think, oh, my gosh, but how am I going to do four saunas a week? That's like 30 bucks a session and I don't have that kind of money. And it it's not about that. It's about finding what you can do instead of thinking everything you see on the internet is something you need to do.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think that also gets into another important point. Um, and I learned this from my mentors um, is that it's not, it's not about the right supplement or the right therapy or the right practitioner or the right book, you know, or the, or the right uh, plan. It's about the right way of thinking um, about disease. And I think that's, that's what inspired me to write my book is basically, I, I read all of the the old manuscripts and, um, and I found that they were all saying the same thing. Uh, and I so I took the seven laws that everyone was saying again and again, and I credit those laws to them. I don't take any credit for it. I didn't invent these laws, um, but I learned them from my mentors and then I saw them in action. And now I see them in action with my patients every day uh, for, for those who who are looking to heal or to rebalance. Not not everybody's looking to heal or rebalance and that's okay.
0: <laughs> um,
1: you know, because it takes... Like, like we talked about at the beginning, it takes that, that choice or that intention, that desire, that step in that direction that has to come first.
0: Yeah, it really does. And something you also talk about uh, is how we've moved from most of our illnesses being these acute infection-style illnesses to the chronic illnesses, the autoimmune, and that coinciding with the waning of vitality um can you explain the mechanism of this change in the immune system like what what has happened here to cause this so it's like a misfiring isn't it it's just like it's very confused all of a sudden
1: absolutely yeah and i i thought about this question because there's so many ways to answer it um and there's so many um scientific viewpoints that are valid or validated uh, depending on what um organ or what cell one is looking at or what Um, disease one is looking at, Um, I think, since we were talking about SIRS, I think that one way, uh, one one context would be SIRS. Uh, In SIRS, we have the CD57 um, natural killer cells, the NK cells, um, which are, I I think of them as like the guard dogs of the immune system. They're basically these fairly large white blood cells that will attack anything that comes into the house, just like a good guard dog. Um, The thing is, is they have no memory Uh, because they're part of the innate immune system. So they don't remember anything. There's no antibodies, but they will attack anything that comes in, even if it's a loved one or a family member, uh, because they don't care. They're just going to attack, you know, and it's usually viruses. Uh, But the thing is, is that over time, um, when there's something like Lyme disease present or something like mold illness present, or even Epstein-Barr, or even the beginnings of cancer, um, which may not be detected by conventional medicine, uh, these natural killer cells will get used up. They'll get get depleted and they'll go from, uh, let's say 150 down to slowly, you know, to 175, 50. And then when I check a patient's blood, you know, they'll be down maybe around 20 or 25 when they should be above 100. And, um, you know, obviously this is not a diagnostic way uh, of, of determining a disease, but it just tells us that that innate immunity, all of those guard dogs are now dead or sleeping. And so that means that any virus can just come into the house and take over. And I think that at one point that happens, um, you know, it's quite scary. And it you know, it's almost like a horror movie where now the house is infiltrated by all of these foreign um, pathogens. Uh, And there's a point at which the body kind of just gives up and it kicks into a different form of immunity called the Th2 response, which is all about making antibodies and all about um, protecting with antibodies and having memory and all these things. And that's where we get autoimmune disease. That's where we get all of this antibody production because there's already all of these foreigners in the house and there's no way to get them out. And so that that initial response is very acute. It's like the dog attacks uh, and it wrestles with the virus and then maybe it dies with it, uh, but the virus doesn't have its effect. But then over time, if that happens enough, um, the house becomes infiltrated. And we see this in mold illness where um, it's almost as though the acute response can no longer be mounted because of a deficiency in like a white blood cell. Uh, so I think that's a great way to, uh, to understand um, autoimmune disease has three stages. Uh, the, you know, the first stage is called silent autoimmunity, where antibodies are present, but there's no symptoms. Um, you know, and this happens a lot where we go to the doctor, the doctor runs some tests and they're like, oh yeah, you've got some antibodies, but don't worry, come back to me when you start having symptoms. You're fine. And so you know after maybe a couple of years we go back And then we're like, hey, doc, you know, my my knee is hurting. Um, And they run it again. They're like, oh, yeah, you've still got this antibody, this rheumatoid factor. So I think you've now got rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, But the thing is, is the third stage is when we have symptoms and we have the antibodies, but we have our function being compromised. Uh, You know, maybe that knee is so painful that we can't walk up and down the stairs very well. And that's when we enter what what conventional medicine recognizes as autoimmunity, which can take, by the way, one to 17 years. So according to all the studies, it's either 12 months or it's up to 17 years. So we could be sort of in that gray area, falling through the cracks of the medical system, um, knowing that there's something wrong, but the conventional doctor is just saying, "Oh, you're fine. Come back to me when you're not fine. But really, we're not fine.
0: Mm and that's when we need to work. So uh you, when you were describing these the NK cells, the the attack guys, I, it, and then their journey of like I'm like wow, that sounds like a middle-aged woman with adrenals. <laughs> sounds like it's like a metaphor for actually uh that convergence that a lot of people find themselves in in perimenopause where you've got the teenage kids the aging parents the peak of your career uh and you're going through hormonal changes like the most cruel convergence really from a a life and uh and hormonal perspective but here we are and, um, and it looks like our NK cells are going through the same thing. They're just getting sick of having to deal with it all and they're burning out and then they can't help us anymore.
1: Exactly. And it's very, very serious, you know, And mm. conventional medicine, like here in the U S the FDA, uh, the CDC, uh, they don't recognize this NK cells as valid, you know, for anything other than all the science shows us that this is just looking at how the immune system works. Mm. of course we would never use it to diagnose but it does tell us that if the nk cells are very low and they're not you know they not only are they not functioning well but there's not a lot of them then we know that that innate arm of the immune system is going to be very weak and it sets one up for chronic epstein-barr for um, other viruses like parvovirus co-infections like bartonella babesiosis uh, lyme disease will often be able to kind of come in And take over if it's already been in the system. Uh, And I see this all the time where my patients, you know, maybe were exposed to a tick of some kind, you know, when they were 10 years old, and now they're coming into my office at the age of 40. And for the first time in their lives, they have Lyme disease, even though it's been in their system for decades. Mm. Uh, And so I think that there's, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation, but there is an association here. And we can follow uh, the body and we can look at the blood and for those of us who are skillful enough to interpret it, we can we can put together a story that you know and make educated guesses um, about what's going on, and then we can we can correct help correct it yeah. so that people are back to whatever normal is. They're back to the, their old selves.
0: So, how can we work to rebuild our NK situation into like being good attack dogs? Are there things we can do there?
1: Yeah, that really is the million dollar question. (laughs) And I think uh, one of my favorite uh, therapies is hyperbaric chamber, Um, Mm. you know, like because uh, and I've got a chamber here in my office, but basically one gets into the chamber and it uh, increases the oxygen saturation by over 500 times. And so I can be in that chamber for 60 to 90 minutes and all of my mitochondria are getting saturated with uh, oxygen, um, and because of uh, you know the law of gradients, basically all of that um, high concentration oxygen is just coming right in to my cells where um, you know where uh, there isn't as much, and so it's just diffusing. And the, the thing about the the hyperbaric chamber is it it skips hemoglobin, it skips the lungs, it just goes right in through the skin and right into the mitochondria, and then it starts the electron transport chain and gets all that ATP, that currency of the cells firing, getting energy made, you know, which then gets the detox pathways going. And so it feeds so many birds with one seed, you know, and we know that 95% of all chronic disease is due to hypoxia and lack of perfusion. In other words, not having enough oxygen and not having enough blood flow. And so if we can get into the hyperbaric chamber, we get more oxygen and we get more blood flow to every cell in the body. Now, of course, like I said uh, about 20 minutes ago, the difference between a medicine and a poison really is the dose. And for those who are highly sensitive, like somebody with full-blown SIRS, and maybe they have a a co-infection as well, and and then some really serious mold, um, they, they, they wanna be very careful with their dosage of hyperbaric oxygen and maybe just start very
0: small. And when you Um, say very small, are you talking the amount of time you spend in there?
1: Exactly. Maybe 15 minutes instead of 90 minutes to start Mm. and seeing how they do Um, because hyperbaric medicine will kick up the detox pathways and then they could have a Herxheimer reaction and get a lot worse, um, which is not necessary. So, Mm. you know, just kind of finding that edge. I think that that's really where the art of medicine comes in is finding that edge where, um, you know, sort of like the Goldilocks principle, where it's just right, it's not too much, it's not too little, but maybe there's a little bit of an edge that um, tells the person that that things are real, and that there are symptoms here. Um,
0: Yeah, okay. And so we're in the chamber, and we're noticing what if it's not turning out to be a good experience? Like if we're getting to that threshold, what does that look like? Does it happen while you're in there or do you tend to find out afterwards, which is why you give the 15 minute guideline for the first few sessions?
1: Yeah. Usually it's a little bit afterward. Um, I mean, depending on the person, but, uh, the, the body will go through a pretty serious detox for anywhere to, you know, one to 12 hours after a hyperbaric, uh, session. Um, and then, as a person stacks them, they accumulate and they have kind of a synergistic effect. The uh, the the medical dose uh, this, that the scientific literature shows uh, is effective for most um, mold illness or Lyme disease is forty sessions, uh, and it's the same for like a, a traumatic brain injury. About forty sessions will heal um, many issues, uh, and that so that might be three a week for you know. Uh, you know, for, yeah, for about uh, a month, um, or, or I guess three weeks, depending on how you, how you dice it up. But, um, uh, some, somebody could also do two a week, but really one a week won't be effective because there's getting that one session. It will help, but it won't be nearly as powerful as if they can do two or three a week or even four or five if possible. So, um, so it really depends. Uh, the good news is most people won't react, uh, too strongly. Um, it's just that they're in that really severe end of the spectrum, and of course, I'm not giving any medical advice here. But it just um, depends on the person uh, and their state, uh, yeah, to to kind of see to see what what what, and also just checking in with them because they might they might go in for a full hour and then that evening they have a terrible headache or they have a terrible Herxheimer reaction because now they're detoxing all of these mycotoxins out of their system, but they're you know it's basically in their blood or in their gut, but they're not able to get it out.
0: Mm. uh, I was was thinking that and I was thinking, could this be a good time to have like a bit of a binder and a um, make sure you're pooping kind of conversation to like, um, to to go after these sorts of sessions?
1: Yeah, um, I am very conservative with binders. And I know that binders are Hmm. um, much beloved, but I think that in most cases, the binders shouldn't come in until later in the treatment because the binders will bind up the nutrients as well. Mm -hmm. And they'll bind up the antioxidants and the things that we're trying to help them with. And so it often will backfire. Um, and there's just other better ways to deal with things early on. Um, and and many times one can get through without having to use binders much. Um, so it's a word of caution for binders. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Nice. And so, uh, one more question on uh, hyperbarics: What kind of timeline do you often see? Really sick people who are really needing to detoxify, the mold, Lyme patients, especially. Um. What kind of increments of increasing the time you spend in a hyperbaric chamber seem to be uh common, if you like?
1: Yeah. I mean it really depends on the person and their access and, and and whether or not they can afford it.
0: Mm, Um, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. A lot of times my patients will buy their own because they can, you know, buy one for seven or $8,000 us, and then they can sell it in a year for almost the same price. Mm. And, you know, rather than going and dropping, uh, you know, three or four grand uh, on 40 sessions, uh, they could just invest that into their own and then resell it. Um, Or they could even, Create a side business because um, almost every town needs hyperbaric medicine, and people are looking for it. They'll gladly pay for it. Mm. So uh, it's a great business opportunity for a lot of people to have a chamber, because here in the U.S., it costs one hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars per session.
0: Yeah, um, same here. You know.
1: Yeah, mm. so yep, which is very mask. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's so effective, and of course, at the hospital, it's. Several thousands of dollars uh, here in the U.S. It's approved for about twelve different conditions under Medicare, um, where you know hyperbaric medicine is approved and covered. But it's very serious conditions like you know serious burns and traumatic brain injuries, things like that, gangrene. Um, so yeah, really, it really depends. Uh, but uh, generally, it's about forty sessions that are required for a person to. To get some significant detoxification mm-hmm. and and most of my patients are doing it twice a week just with how busy people are they just have a hard time doing something more than twice a week so they end up you know for 20 weeks or so they're doing it twice a week and i'm seeing people get major benefit from that um, and also it's incredibly powerful for long covid and for epstein-barr uh, and for any kind of microbial infection of the gut because the hyperbaric chamber is also an, a natural antibiotic. It modulates the microbiome and mm. um, jumpstarts the immune system in a gentle way. You know, 70% of our immune system's in our gut. And so it's really incredible um, for, for um, bacterial overgrowth like SIBO and... Um, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, things that people often end up from one protocol to the next to the next supplement regime. I walked out again with another 500 bucks on different vitamins and supplements and, you know, then when you add all of that up, maybe the hyperbaric chamber didn't seem like such a such a bad idea. Um I, and thank you for kind of expanding on that because I think a lot of people know it exists and know that people are having some really amazing breakthroughs. And I think what's interesting, you saying that it's covered for severe things by Medicare in your country, not here at all. Um, But what's interesting to me about that is how blatantly uh, geared towards crisis care we are. And if it works for those severe things, then logically one would know that it works even faster and with less need for less severe things to help less people get to severity in the first place. That's the kicker, right?
1: It's so true. And um there's a ton of research coming out of uh, Israel because they, I mean they've got several thousands of chambers being used at different hospitals. Uh, but there's just amazing research, um, hundreds and hundreds of profound studies coming out from Asia and from the Middle East, all over the world, uh, proving the, the the efficacy of hyperbaric medicine for chronic disease. And now, um, hyperbaric medicine um, it has been shown to to literally resolve about 175 different chronic diseases, mm-hmm. um, and it's just unbelievable I, I i mean talk about a miracle um treatment and then you know this is why every uh world-class athlete is getting in their chamber you know before yeah. they, i mean before and after the game
0: mm, i always say look to the athletes because what they're doing uh to recover from like a five set match of tennis like no one does an hiit class for five hours but a tennis athlete does and to see what they're doing they're doing their hot and colds and they're doing their hyperbarics, absolutely. And it's what yep. we've talked about today for for sick people. So you know, it's ah, oh, it's it's crazy how simple it is, how close it is within our reach, and yet how complicated it is to get there sometimes. Um, but I want to talk about uh, something that is being talked about a lot, which is leakiness. Uh, because uh, I've seen you talk about this, and and the leaky gut, the leaky brain, leaky blood-brain barriers. Uh, Is leakiness linked in all of those situations, and we can work on the notion of leakiness in and of itself, or are they different things to work on?
1: Right, yeah, that's a great question. I I think that in some cases, uh, it's a yes to both. Um, You know, you could work on you can work on all of them at the same time, but then in some cases we have to work on each one um, because there's certain things that can throw, um, throw them off um, uh, more, more so like in the gut versus the brain. Uh, But, but really, you know, it's, if you think about it, it's um, part of the immune system, really. Uh, I mean, the gut is sort of like the second um, barrier besides the skin, Mm -hmm. you know, the the skin, if the skin's not breached, then uh, the food that's coming in will try to breach the barrier within and uh, try to get through that gut. And, and it's, it's such a task to think about how uh, we're, we're absorbing all these nutrients, but then we have to keep um, things from getting in. Um, it's a very tall task, you know, that, that, the, that the gut has to, 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 to do. Um, and then we see that intestinal permeability, so-called leaky gut, Uh, Really is an underpinning. I I wouldn't say it's a root cause because it's usually a symptom of something deeper, but it really is a um, an underlying factor in most chronic disease now. Um, You know, driving inflammation. uh, And and, and, you know, for those, I mean, obviously most people know what leaky gut is. But in the gut, we have the you know the epithelial layer, uh, which is a small, um, I guess enterocytes is what they're called, the stomach cells, and they're all kind of glued together by what are called tight junctions, these little basically uh, little bits of cement or glue that kind of glue them together, uh, so to speak. And, um, and we know that the way I always explain it to my patients is that um, it's like a it's like a tube. Um, and it's like a like a hose that's sitting in the sun. Uh, you know, that's maybe in the summer sun, the hose that's been turned off but it's full of water. Um, and the thing is is the hose will kind of start to expand just a little bit in the sun because it's hot. It's warm. Uh, And sometimes um, for the old, for the particularly older hoses, they'll start to leak a little bit. And it's the same in the gut. When it becomes inflamed uh, by a standard um, diet of processed food, then it'll become a little um, inflamed and it'll become leaky. And then those digested proteins that are coming down the tube, or I should say undigested proteins, some of them will breach that barrier and they'll go right through Um, the little holes that have opened. And what runs alongside the tube on the other side? But blood vessels, right? So there's literally just blood vessels on the other side of the tube. And so these little bits of undigested proteins will end up in the blood. And then the immune system, like a hawk, will just you know, put put its radar vision there and say, what are these things doing in here? They're not supposed to be here. Soy, chicken, gluten, egg, you know, cane sugar, whatever. And then it'll start to mount a response, make antibodies. And then these antibodies will show up on these expensive food sensitivity tests. Um, And the thing is, is that I, 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 I think these food sensitivity panels need to be taken with a grain of salt uh, you know, here in the U.S., they're about 500 bucks to run. They look at about 500 different foods. Um, it's like a 20-page report, um, and there's many different companies running them. Uh, but I've observed that many times they're just showing us what a person eats the most of. Um, in other words, they they often come back positive for what what's prevalent in a person's diet. And if you think about the science, well, I can kind of predict that that's going to be the case, because if they have leaky gut and they love potatoes and they love cheese, well, then the, those, you know, the cheese and the potatoes are going to end up in their blood and they're going to make antibodies to the dairy and to the potato. And then it's going to show up on these tests. Mm, uh, but correlation, yeah. correlation doesn't mean causation, though. It's mm. not the cheese and the potato that's causing the problems. So these doctors, in my opinion, are, are sometimes doing a little bit of a disservice if they're telling the people to stop eating all the things that came up positive on their test, because um, those things aren't necessarily the things that are driving the inflammation to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it really depends. Some doctors use them incredibly skillfully, but I just think they need to be taken with a grain of salt.
0: Yeah. And I I'm not sure whether this is uh, right to say, so please correct me if it's wrong, but I almost think it is part of this culture where we're trying to look for the culprit and the culprit is an external thing rather than a thing going on inside us that's out of balance, which is what you talk about. Uh, And and so once we have something to blame, it's its fault and, and it just becomes this overblown uh, picture of what's wrong and often not what's actually wrong.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that uh, just to finish this idea too, it's like these people um, and and I've run these tests and like, there's a lot of great doctors running these tests. So I, I want to give them that, you know, but, uh, but uh, I see this story a lot where um, the person has tried everything, you know, they spent their $500. Mm -hmm. They, you know, 10 or 12 different foods came back in the red, the doctor told them to stop eating those 10 or 12 foods, those 10 or 12 foods just happened to be all of their favorite things. Mm -hmm. And so they stopped eating all of those 10 or 12 things, just like a good patient. Um, And then they got a little bit better, because they literally just removed everything that could possibly be causing any inflammation. Uh, And so they do that for maybe three or four weeks. And then they start to get kind of down. They feel a little bit depressed. They can't go and have Thai food or Italian food or Mexican food or whatever with their, their loved ones anymore. And they start to feel like, is this really what the meaning is of is this life? my life
0: like, now? I, yeah, yeah. I'm eating
1: the gaps diet now and I'm drinking bone broth and this sucks. Like I hate my life. And so the patient <laughs> will basically throw in the towel and they'll go back to eating all of the same things again and they'll be no better off than when they started, but they'll just be five hundred dollars poorer, mm. um, and they'll still not know what the root causes of their issues.
0: Mm-hmm. And then they'll come to me. <laughs> yeah, root yeah, root. yeah. I think it's uh, and and so yeah. I often say to people, if you are with a practitioner for longer than a month, eating like some tiny group of foods, uh, then it's time to have new conversations. And and so can we actually, can I just ask you a question about that in your practice, when you get that person that comes and they're eating like six foods because they're reacting to everything else, what are your first steps to guide them to broader?
1: Right. Yeah. This is a really big question. And, um,
0: I love how we've gone completely <sighs> off the program yeah. questions <laughs> oh, too, yeah, by I the way, that, yeah. I, that I painstakingly <laughs> wrote out. But this is interesting <laughs> oh, stuff, yeah. and it comes up a lot. Yeah, it
1: does come up a lot. And so here in the Pacific Northwest, um, there is a, an old naturopathic modality um, that is 100 years old, and it originated in uh, Washington State in a town called Spokane. Um, it's, you know, maybe 500,000 people. But anyway... Um, In that town, in the 1920s, a very famous naturopathic doctor invented a method of testing the blood for food intolerance. Hmm. And uh, the story goes that he invented this test with the help of Nikola Tesla, uh, the famous inventor who happened to be his good friend. Um, And anyway, he he was a tinkerer, kind of an engineer tinkerer, but he was also a physician. And he was trying to figure out a way to using electromagnetics uh check the blood for food intolerance and so after i don't know after 10 years or so with the help of tesla the story goes that he actually was able to finish his invention and and figure it out um so i am trained in that method and it's called the carol method for those who want to look it up carol with two r's two l's i i have no financial ties to to the it's a it's a non-profit um uh, called the Carroll Institute of Healing. Uh, but anyway, um, I am certified and trained in that method of testing the blood for food intolerance. And I know a lot of people say, um, including friends like Chris Kresser and other uh, very famous functional medicine people, will say that this test is not evidence based and you know that it's a little bit more borderline, woo-woo, so to speak. Um, I don't find that to be the case at all. And uh, you know, I'm a, a lover of science. It is more along the lines of like acupuncture uh, and maybe applied kinesiology. Uh, However, it doesn't require any kind of muscle testing and it doesn't require any intuition. You're literally collecting a little specimen of a person's blood and then one runs it through a machine that is patented uh, by the Carroll Institute of Healing and uh, tests it against about 30 different food groups. And um, without fail, one is able to determine the one or two food groups that a person uh, reacts to, and um, so it's very elegant, very simple. Um, now, most of the time, you know, it's dairy. Uh, dairy is the number one food intolerance in the world. Um, probably fifty percent of all people have a dairy intolerance, and uh, and it's it's much more than a, just a, a lactose intolerance. It's an it's an intolerance to casein. It's an intolerance to uh, ghee or clarified butter. You know, any form of dairy uh, will, will cause problems for a person with a dairy intolerance. So it almost transcends, um, it, it's almost the quantum level in some ways where there's actually uh, energetic properties, which we see a lot in plants. So I mean, that's kind of where we get into a little bit of the woo-woo, but I can tell you that the test, there's no nothing woo-woo about running the test. It's the same as an acupuncturist using a needle and finding that spot where it goes right into the meridian and, you know, and, and, and basically has its effect. So I think that's, uh, you know, there, there are so many ways to get to where one's trying to go. So this test isn't perfect. It's not for everyone. And I'm not even recommending it. I'm just saying, that's my starting point. And I find that um, to be very powerful. And for me, because I'm a, a, a believer in it, um, I actually do believe that most of us have one food that we're not supposed to eat. And it's almost like our kryptonite, um, our bodies just probably genetically, ancestrally, uh, just can't break down those food groups. Uh, so for example, take the potato. We you know, I already mentioned potato. The potato originated in South America, You know, as a tuber that was you know, cultivated uh, you know, several centuries ago in South America. Uh, and, um, what I find is that a lot of my patients who have absolutely no ancestry whatsoever from that part of the world, the world might have that intolerance when I test their blood. Um, anyway, we don't have to get too into that, but that's just somewhere that I start. Um, because usually there is a food, um, but I find that the food sensitivity testing, looking at antibodies doesn't usually give the answer
0: mm And so do you find it's often ancestral? Like, you know, sometimes I think rice and me, rice is like like putting a little brick in my stomach. and yet I can eat um, other grains just fine and uh, and not have an issue. And so I often think, well, you know, French British ancestry, like it makes no sense for me to to eat rice.
1: Yeah, it it absolutely is ancestral, I think. And we often see it being passed down, you know, from mother or father to son or daughter. Um, And so I I do think that that's an important piece that we need to acknowledge, you know, that um, I do believe that uh, there are certain foods that most of us shouldn't eat. And Mm -hmm. that if we are eating a lot of them, um, we will end up with a chronic disease.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And, and so is that like an interesting trial we can do on a personal level to think of the culture we come from and just try leaning into that a little bit more and eating that way a little bit more of the time and seeing if we feel more vital?
1: Well, it's, uh, it's tricky because for example, I have uh, patients who, you know, their parents were Irish potato farmers. Uh-huh. Uh, so literally their yeah. culture, their ancestry is potatoes, and that's their favorite food, but that's the one thing that's making them sick. Yeah. So um yeah, so it really depends. It can be um, tricky. Okay.
0: Yeah. I feel like I've opened up a Pandora's box, then yeah. And can we finish with a patient story? I know you've helped a lot of people turn things around, and I think it's always lovely to hear from doctors when uh, a a person comes to mind where things really just looked awful for them and you're able to support them through to vitality?
1: Sure. Um, Let's see. Um, Well, I think uh, a a relatively um, recent case I had uh, in the last couple of years, uh, there was a, um, let's say a 35-year-old male who um, over the last two years, really just couldn't function. I mean, he he really, he couldn't work. Um, and um, he actually rented his own hyperbaric chamber um, trying to cure himself. And he had tried everything. And he had actually spent um, over $400,000 on his health, um, you know, flying around the country, uh, getting stem cells, uh, you name it, he had tried it. Um, and he came to me um, as kind of a last resort. And he had seen a number of naturopathic doctors and functional medicine doctors. Um, And his dad is also a pretty prominent doctor as well, a dentist. Um, Anyway, uh, 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 he basically uh, had extreme brain fog and fatigue and joint pain and um, could barely function. And so, you know, we we ran a bunch of tests and, um, you know, I said, I think you've probably got um, tick-borne illness. And uh, he said, you know, I I haven't really tested that much. Um, It's been a while, so let's do it. So we we ran it and um, he uh, didn't have Lyme, but he had Bartonella, uh, which of course is a co-infection that we see transmitted uh, with Lyme disease. Now, the interesting thing about him is that he had um, been hiking, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years previously um, in a canyon and he was never the same after this hike. And you know, he'd hiked for two or three days. Um, he didn't remember ever being bit by anything, but he came down with a terrible viral fever um, and uh, was never the same. Uh, and so that was a clue to me that there might be something there. Uh, so we, we you know, we found the Bartonella. But what was interesting too, is that after, a couple of years after he took this hike, he came down with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so he began working with a naturopath and um, went on um, thyroid medication, but it just made him worse. And he never really liked being on it. He didn't really feel like it was helping him. Um, well, I did some research and I found that Bartonella will cause Hashimoto's. Uh, and and there's, there's, you can look it up. There's case studies out there. Um, and uh, it kind of makes sense because we know that the thyroid, being the metabolic director of the body, uh, is like a sensitive antenna that picks up oxidative stress all throughout the body. And we know that a, 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 t- a co-infection of like tick-borne illness uh, generates a lot of oxidative stress. It also shuts down the body's ability to detoxify. It kind of really takes a toll um, on the liver and the kidneys, which then means that the body becomes more toxic and the body burden builds, which then can also throw off the thyroid as well. Um, so anyway, um, we then decided to check in for mold and we found that he also had a mold illness. So I was
0: just uh, about to ask you, is this why lime uh, and mold often go together? Because oh, exactly. Yep, yeah. that's exactly right. The reason they go huh.
1: together is mainly because the detox pathways. Uh, now, mold just wrecks the kidneys. I mean, it just loves to just knock out the kidneys. Um, and so it's highly nephrotoxic. Um, And then we know that Lyme being a little spirochete, a little spiral shaped bacteria, I think of Lyme as like the Tasmanian devil, where it can kind of like a corkscrew. It can just burrow into anything like a little devil and throw a party, you know, in that like a part of the body. And so it can go right into the kidneys or it can go into the thyroid or it can go into the heart or it can go anywhere uh, into the nervous system. And um, depending on a person's SNPs and genetic predispositions, uh, you know it, it, it's gonna it's gonna have its party uh, in the weakest links of that particular person. So anyway, we checked mold in this patient, and then sure enough, they had uh, high levels of a couple types of mold. So um, so I basically just put them on some herbs, uh, and I ran a food intolerance test on them, and um, like the one I mentioned, and it came back positive for dairy. Now this patient claimed to be dairy free, but then when I really talked to him, he was putting Kerrygold grass-fed butter into his coffee and he was you know, eating some other dairy items that he didn't think were a big deal that were kind of part of, he found that he did better on a modified ketogenic diet. So I had him take out the grass-fed butter and go on a couple of different herbs. And then we put them on a bunch of antioxidants because we know that antioxidants are the number one thing that the body needs when it comes to SERS. So I put him on, you know, chewable zinc and uh, you name it, uh, powdered uh, magnesium L3 and eight and just different things. But um, anyway, after about a month, he uh, had a complete just turnaround and his his energy went from like a two out of 10 to like a six or seven out of 10. And he worked out for the first time in maybe five years. Uh, He he did a 20-minute workout. um, And then the next day, he went for a run. And so he basically called me. He's like, Dr. Reeves, I have no idea what's going on here. This is absolutely insane. This is crazy. Um, And um, I was like, well, this is is great. This is very powerful telling. Because really what we did was we identified the root cause, which I believe was the, the Bartonella. Um, but then uh, the Hashimoto's came on as a sequelae or, and then we also, the mold came on later because his detox pathways weren't working. And, um, so he spent, you know, $400,000, but then he only spent a couple of thousand dollars with me and we literally figured everything out and now he's doing much better. You know, he's basically almost back to his normal self. And, um, yeah, so I think that's a good story, a good example of, just trusting the power of the body. Cause really what we did with him was we identified the cause and we put together the story and then we put him on a plan that treated each thing. And we removed anything coming into his system that could make him worse, like the dairy, um, make him more toxic. And then we identified that his mitochondria were depleted and needed CoQ10 and, and needed, you know, all these different antioxidants um, I had him keep doing the hyperbaric chamber, which I think really set him up for success. Uh, and then, well, and then, then it was on... able
0: to actually work. Right? Exactly. Precisely.
1: Yeah. Yep. Cause it mm. wasn't working. Uh, mm. uh, yep. And then we also optimized his sleep, um, which I think, uh, I think his adrenal fatigue was really severe, but I think the, the sleep wasn't happening because the oxidative stress was just running rampant from the infection. Uh, and I think I see this so often where patients are misdiagnosed and they've gone from practitioner to practitioner, and, and everyone's just like, and really, it's just basically SERS, you know. Um, but each 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 case is so unique and nuanced that it really takes um, a good look. You know, you know, I, I didn't just put him on my SERS protocol. I had to really look at what's going to work for him, and you know, and, and what's his budget, and uh, but really, he didn't have to spend much money. I put him on. Uh, some teasel root and some black walnut and some different herbs that are really good, you know, for microbes. Very simple. Um, but it's amazing how trusting the body, even in a case like as severe as that, where he could barely function, um, trusting. Now, he the thing about him is he went all in. He did everything. He went all in. And I think that that was, and he, he had the belief that it was sort of like a faint glow of a, a candle flame. It wasn't, full on, but he was trusting, but he also just went all in because he was desperate and he wanted his life back and he got it back.
0: Mm. Uh, but I, I remember his that feeling. Yeah. You I do? remember that feeling. My gosh. And I think it's just a, the human spirit just amazes me at how, However dark things can be. And like, Ben, I, I I was in a place where I really thought, so is is death the end thing here? Like, is this, do I just keep getting worse and worse and then you die? Um, And because seven years ago, mold was just not talked about. I mean, it seems pretty recent, but if you think about it, it really just was not talked about. And the little flame where it just kept coming back going there's just there's got to be something like there has to be something because if it's not explainable then it just means no one knows what it is yet whereas if it was explainable that would probably actually be way worse um and and sometimes I think that in itself the complexity can be the hope because if people can't figure it out it just means you don't have your answer yet it's probably why house was my favorite show of all time um <laughs> but I, I love that story because it also highlights the importance of working with practitioners who timeline. If you don't have someone timelining you, um, it's not right yet. Keep auditioning because the timeline matters within the context of which order you start things in and how things that you might have tried six years ago that just weren't working, like that gut healing protocol, will finally work when you deal with the mycotoxins or whatever else might be going on for you, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, It's and it also just speaks to, it makes me wonder how many people have like Hashimoto's or something and they're just managing it, but the actual underlying root cause has not been discovered yet. Mm. And if only they knew mm-hmm. what it was, they could actually go back to normal again.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you one more question and then we're going to finish. And that question is, you're a naturopathic doctor. You probably do everything beautifully 99.9% of the time, but what is your like one thing that like, maybe it's by the beach in the summer and you don't care what color they, they use to make that ice cream red or like, what is that one thing that you just go with the flow on sometimes?
1: Right. That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I would say that.
0: It, it, I I'd call it the tell all segment. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I have to end up doing that pretty often. We've got a two year old, so, ah, there uh, it is. you know, sometimes I just got to work with his, his, uh, his needs. Um, I think, I mean, I, I know it's a, tr- a trope, you know, or whatever, trite, uh, you know, all things in moderation. I mean, I just think that life is meant for living and, um, You know, like I said, every the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose. And so sometimes just a little bit of that so-called toxin might just be the medicine I need. You know, whether it's a sip of diet coke or, I mean, I don't drink diet coke, but you know, like (laughs) let's say that there's one around and you know somebody's drinking it and they're like, "You want a sip?" Okay, fine, I'll have a sip of diet coke. You know, yeah. What would be the one for me? Um, What would be an example?
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So f- <laughs> so for me, it's an entire packet of corn chips, plain, so at yes. least it's not fake flavours or, or any of that, um, at the end of my luteal phase. I'm just like I am going to sit here and I'm going to enjoy day 26 in all of its glory with my packet of chips. That's one of mine. Or, or the the fish and chips at the beach and I don't care about the vegetable oils that day.
1: Absolutely. Well, I have a lot of them. There's too many to count. So uh, (laughs) I think, um, you know, okay. So I I think for me, every once in a while, I'll like when I just need it, I'll have like a sugar free Red Bull, you know, like a small one. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and it just, I mean, I know it's people say, oh my God, that's so bad, you know, whatever. But, I just enjoy it, you know. I think it is one example.
0: It is cleansing. Once a month
1: I'll have, you know. Well,
0: there you go. (laughs) And I think it's cleansing for us to talk about how, like, no one's actually doing things perfectly. So if we could just forget that idea, um, perfect does not exist. All of our favourite doctors are still having their little can of Red Bull every now and then and not caring about it because what matters is what we do day to day, not what we do sometimes.
1: Yeah, exactly, and I think that's that's such an important part. I think too of the way I practice is is not being on some pedestal and not like looking down, you know, because this stuff is hard. I mean, and mm. we are human beings. We're we're built to enjoy life and to have that cake and to have that candy and that pizza and that Coke and all the things, you know. So I think uh, removing that shame um, is so important, and that for me, that's healing in of itself. Um, and of course, doing my own work is key. If I'm not walking my talk, like if I'm if I'm eating my my food intolerance every day, but then I'm telling my patients not to eat theirs, <laughs> it's not going to work. There's going to be some major dis, dissonance, uh, you know, yeah, incongruity. And what I say isn't going to carry any power. And, and I, I believe in that. I really believe that. Like now, of course, I'm far from impeccable with my word, and I certainly will occasionally have my food intolerance, but I don't do it very often because- I pay for it, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I don't, I don't shame my patients when they fall off the wagon or they find it difficult. Um, it's That's part of the journey. So I think enjoying the journey. And then I even teach them like, look, when you fall off the wagon and you do that thing, like enjoy it and and, yes. and then let's see what happens, you know? And like,
0: yeah. who
1: knows Maybe you're going to feel amazing and nothing happens. Like
0: I know, right? Often it's perception as well. So thank you so much for taking us on the, um, the journey that neither of us could have predicted we were going on in this last hour and a bit, because I think sometimes you start these conversations, especially when we're talking about chronic illness and, you know, conversations need to go where they go. So I want to say thank you for your work and thank you so much for joining me, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory which gives you food, body, home, mind and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths health professionals and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey whether it's making daily swaps getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation. You can hit the courses tab on lotoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials, go and head over to at lotoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review, wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.